Hello and welcome to The Family Planning Files, a podcast developed by the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In today's podcast, in accordance with the 2021 Title X Final Rule on Providing Non-Directive Options Counseling to Patients Who Test Positive for Pregnancy, we'll be discussing adoption and informed consent with Melinda Seymour, J.D., Melinda Seymour is a professor at Texas A&M School of Law with expertise in adoption law, criminal law, and professional responsibility, as well as being an adoptive mother herself. Welcome to the podcast, Melinda. We're so excited to talk with you today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. To begin, for our listeners, what does adoption look like in the U.S. today? How many adoptions happen, and are there any geographic or demographic disparities or differences in adoption? That's a little hard to answer because the information that's available demographically about adoption is virtually non-existent. Each state keeps their own statistics and reports what they wish to report and will not report what they don't wish to report. So it's really hard to get a picture. In one way, adoption today looks much like it looked in the past. It starts with loss. Uh, Before a child can be adopted, we must first terminate the parental rights of any legal parents, and that means the prospective birth parents. And we then replace those parental rights by transferring them to the adoptive parents. Adoption has long been secretive, and though it is opening up some, in all but 12 states in the United States, adoptees are given amended birth certificates, which replace their birth parents' names with the adoptive parents' names, and they are no longer given access to their original birth certificate. So that secrecy is a a big change. One of the largest changes in adoption today really is the growth of direct private placement adoption facilitated by the internet. In direct placement adoptions, the prospective birth parent and the prospective adoptive parents find each other without the aid of an adoption agency or a facilitator. Often they find themselves uh, on the internet and they agree to an adoption. It's only later that the adoptive parents will hire an attorney to finalize the adoption. And direct placement adoption can be a little risky for both sides and potentially dangerous for the child, given the lack of government oversight until after the placement has already happened. There's a great deal of potential for fraud on both sides with direct private placement adoption, but uh, the parties feel more in control. So actually, a majority of adoptions today are through direct private placement adoptions rather than through agencies. Agencies. I can't offer exact figures about adoption, but I can tell you the most common type of adoption is step-parent adoption. About 60% of adoptions are actually step-parent adoptions. About 20% of adoptions are through the child welfare system, the state foster care system. 10% involve international adoptions. Most of those with uh, the United States as a receiving country for children, but the U.S. is also a sending country in international adoption, which is something most people don't know. And about 10% of adoptions involve what we usually think of as the classic case of adoption, newborn or infant adoption at or near birth. So that 10% doesn't really encompass a large number. We're probably talking about 14,000 infants placed for adoption each year. 
at least since Roe v. Wade was announced, that's about what we have. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned. About 30% of women may have an abortion in their lifetime, but less than 1% will place a child for adoption. You mentioned some terms and also terms that we may have heard in the media or in adoption circles, open adoption versus a closed adoption. And you also mentioned a private adoption. What do all those terms mean? Oh, that's a great question. When we talk about open adoption, we generally mean there is some kind of contact between the birth parent and the adoptive parent, either before or after placement, or perhaps both. Closed adoptions generally mean there is no such contact. Closed adoption is thought of as relatively anonymous, where neither the birth parent nor the adoptive parent knows the names or locations of the other, and that is traditionally how adoption was done. Open adoption really began to grow in the 1980s because birth mothers wanted it. Before they would relinquish a child for adoption, they wanted some assurance that they would be able to know where their child was and whether they were happy and doing well. We found that it was actually good for adopted children because they too wondered where their birth parents were and whether they were doing well. And we found it was actually good for adoptive parents as well, because when they no longer mystified the birth parents, they didn't fear them quite as much and were able to feel more confident in their role as parent. So open adoption really became the norm. And today there are more open adoptions than closed adoptions. But open adoption can mean so many different things that it's pretty useless as a descriptor, really. It may mean that that the birth mother will select the adoptive parent by looking at portfolios of the adoptive parents prior to adoption. And they may still never know the name or location of those adoptive parents and vice versa. It may mean that they will meet the adoptive parent before the placement. It may mean that they will have continuing contact after the adoptive placement. So sometimes it's mediated so that you would only contact each other through, say, the adoption agency. You might only exchange letters and photos, or you might have ongoing in-person meetings with the adoptive family, including the child. It may be ongoing meetings with the adoptive parents without the child. Open adoption can be just about anything, and, and that can be extremely confusing for birth parents who may be promised an open adoption from the adoption agency, but they each have a very different idea in mind of what constitutes open adoption. And in most places, open adoption agreements may not be legally enforceable. It can be simply a handshake promise. And if the adoptive parents are to renege on the agreement, there's nothing that the birth parents can do about it. After all, the birth parents are a legal stranger to the child after an adoption, and the only legal parents are the adoptive parents. So they're the only ones who get to decide who can see their child. So... Uh, Open adoption is such an amorphous term, it's extremely important for birth parents to really examine what the promises are that are being made and what they actually mean. Sometimes that means having an attorney. 
perhaps because I'm an attorney, I think every birth mother should have an attorney. In most states, there is no requirement that a birth parent be represented by counsel, um, though most would be quite benefited by having a lawyer to help them understand the intricacies, particularly open adoption. And birth parents can ask for an attorney with the adoption agency or with the adoptive parents. And even if they can't afford an attorney, uh, the adoption agency or the adoptive parents may well pay for their attorney. And when the attorney is paid by someone else, it doesn't change the fact that the birth mother is the client and the duty of care owed by the lawyer is to the client. So it can be extremely useful in understanding open adoption for the birth mother to have her own lawyer. And anything I say about birth mothers tends to follow for birth fathers as well. So in some of your writings, you discuss the concept of informed consent with adoption. And most of our listeners are clinicians. So they're familiar with informed consent in terms of that clinical healthcare context. But adoption is not, per se, a medical procedure. So why use it in this context? Well, placing a child for adoption is relinquishing one's constitutionally protected right to parent. And so the usual standard for waiving a constitutional right is knowing, intelligent, and voluntary. So when any constitutional right, if you were to waive your right to an attorney in a criminal case, your waiver would have to be knowing, intelligent, and voluntary. So we see that the clinical term informed consent has some similarities to adoption consent in that way. They're not quite the same because you're right, adoption is not a medical procedure. Adoption is not a reproductive issue at all. It's really a parenting issue. It's a decision about parenting. Now, one difference we see is that courts looking at adoption focus more on voluntary, more than on the knowing and intelligent part. But how can a consent actually be voluntary if the birth parents aren't aware of the consequences of their consent to adoption? So informed consent in, for adoption, in my mind, is when the birth mother chooses adoption after being fully informed of all of her options is told about the potential downsides of adoption, as well as any benefits, is offered support to exercise the option. Without that, it's hard to say that consent is in fact knowing, intelligent, and voluntary. If the birth mother is offered that information, it then is hard to complain in court that the consent was not voluntary. And so we want adoption consents to be something that will stand up in court. We don't want the disruption for the child of a birth mother who made a mistake when she chose adoption and now wants to change her mind. That's very disruptive. And we want consents to be solid, solidly informed, so we can avoid that potential disruption. So in that way, I think that explaining alternatives, explaining the risks and benefits, the way that protects from legal liability in adoption is the same way that in the clinical context, informed consent prevents legal challenge. Again, that leads us really well into our next question. As you've noted again in some of your writings that adoption is often viewed through, shall we say, the rose-tinted lens, which, as you noted, doesn't facilitate true informed consent. 
what concerns or realities, benefits and drawbacks for both the pregnant client and the child would you recommend be discussed in order to provide that more realistic view that facilitates the informed consent around adoption? This is a subject I could go on forever. So the stories we tell about adoption usually involve an unwanted child rescued by loving adoptive parents desperate for a child. Just about everything in that story is toxic to the relationship between the parties and is toxic to informed consent. First, it tends to disappear the birth parents altogether. We don't ask why they're placing instead of parenting. We just say that the child is unwanted. Uh, Who doesn't want their child? In saying that, we actually other the birth parents by thinking of them as somehow less than human since their own child was unwanted by them. In fact, it's more accurate to say that the birth parents want to parent in most cases, but they are not able to for a number of reasons. The unwanted label for the child also stigmatizes the child, often leading adopted children to believe that there was something wrong with them to make them unwanted, that they are intrinsically unlovable. The the unwanted label is really anathema for both the child and the birth parent. Uh, The theme of rescue creates expectations that adoptees should be grateful for being adopted. Adoptees often struggle with reconciling any negative feelings that they have about adoption, grief, loss, identity confusion, with the perpetual drumbeat that they should instead be grateful for the rescue. Now, that expectation of gratitude might actually come from the adoptive parents, which can be very harming to the relationship, as well as society at large. I will tell you that virtually every adoptee has a story about someone telling them they should be grateful for their adoption. And most of them don't quite enjoy being told that. I think that potential birth parents need to know about the large body of psychosocial research that show negative as well as positive outcomes for some adoptees and for some birth parents. For example, uh, adoptees have a higher risk of suicide and suicide attempts, in some studies four times the risk as non-adoptees. Adoptees are overrepresented in mental health facilities. We don't know why precisely they are. Some, it may be because they came from a hard place, foster care or an institution. Some, it may be simply that adoptive parents are more savvy about psychological help because of what they've learned in the adoption process, but they are overrepresented in mental health facilities. Adoptees report feelings of loss and grief and fear of abandonment and rejection that are all related to adoption, and those feelings are not temporary. They may recur throughout their lives. Uh, They may experience relationship difficulties as adults related to those fears, and adoptees, particularly not exclusive, but not exclusively transracial adoptees, experience identity issues related to knowing so little about their biological backgrounds, their cultural background, their language, their foods. They feel untethered without that information. And adoptees face stigma around being adopted. As much as we have that positive story about adoption we tell, adoption is often the actually the punchline of the joke. 
Sometimes adoption themes in movies and television seem to paint all adoptees as psychotic. So there is quite a lot of stigma associated with being adopted, and adoptees can face microaggressions in that way. Now, birth mothers also experience negative as well as positive outcomes of adoption placement. Birth mothers may experience lifelong grief following adoption placement. They will say they feel the psychological presence of the child and that that grief is so misunderstood or unrecognized that it's difficult for them to overcome the grief. Some birth mothers have feelings of shame and a negative self-image regarding their adoption decision. After all, uh, only an unnatural mother would give up her child, right? And so they internalize those, uh, those messages that we get from society. As parents, some birth mothers who do become parents again after they've placed a child, they may be overprotective and quite anxiously attached to their parented children. Now, the group of birth mothers who experience the worst grief resolution are those who initially had post-adoption contact, you know, an open adoption, but for whom the contact ceased. And that often happens with an open ad- adoption agreement that's not legally enforceable. Can you discuss some specific concerns around adoption, informed consent, and particularly vulnerable populations? For example, women who are involved in the justice system or adolescents. It's interesting with women involved in the justice system because they are often going to catch the attention of the child welfare system, what Dorothy Roberts calls the family separation system, where their children may be involuntarily removed from their care and enter adoption through the foster care system. But it's often uh, the family separation system can be used to incentivize voluntary placement for adoption in order to avoid that involuntary termination of parental rights. In fact, if a child is involuntarily removed from you and your parental rights are terminated in one child, you're far more likely to lose a subsequent child or other children who are in your care. So the state will often encourage women in those situations to voluntarily terminate and place for adoption to avoid that consequence. And it's hard to think of that as a truly voluntary choice when it comes with the coercive power of the state behind it. So women involved in the justice system are definitely at risk in that way. Adolescents, we know that their brains develop and uh, are not yet developed. In fact, until they're in their mid-20s, they're not well-developed. Adolescents, however, are generally treated like adults in the adoption system. Even though an adolescent may not be allowed to sign a cell phone contract or get in a tanning bed, they are still able to relinquish their child for adoption with no adult in the room. Uh, with nobody offering them any kind of adult advice, perhaps just the adoptive parents and perhaps just an agency representative, both of whom may have interests contrary to that minor. A few states require minors to have an attorney, but most do not. So minors are particularly vulnerable to pressure to relinquish. And we tend to think that it's such a rational decision because they are so obviously too young to parent that courts don't tend to examine the voluntariness of consent too rigorously. Now, but I do want to mention one thing. 16 and pregnant is sort of our our general 
image of the birth mother. Birth mothers are actually older than we think. They are more likely to be in their 20s than in their teens. And birth mothers are more likely to have children already than we tend to think as well. So the pattern of of who is a birth mother today is a bit different from who is a birth mother uh, in the past. Now, usually one of the populations that is more likely to place are those who oppose abortion, who, at least in their own life. But a newly vulnerable population are those facing an unplanned pregnancy after the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs. We don't know whether or how that will affect adoption. The Turnaway Study, which followed women who were denied abortions they wanted, found that the vast majority of those women, 91%, chose to parent rather than to place for adoption. Still, that 9% of women who placed is a far higher number than the annual adoption placement rate, which is probably closer to 1%. We don't know what's going to happen now. The court in Dobbs certainly seemed to contemplate a growth in adoption. Part of its rationale for allowing abortion bans was that abortion isn't necessary when one can avoid child rearing by placing for adoption. Of course, that doesn't account for the desire to avoid the pregnancy altogether. And uh, the court, in doing so, used language of commodification to describe as a problem the fact that there was virtually no domestic supply of infants for adoption. And the court is hearing a case next week about the Indian Child Welfare Act, where they're being asked to rule it unconstitutional based on race, uh, making more children available for adoption to white families and making Indian families more vulnerable to the loss of their children to adoption. So in addition to providing that non-directive options counseling that I mentioned earlier, Title X clinicians make those referrals to services requested by pregnant clients. We've talked a lot about some of the potential pitfalls and risks that those pregnant clients who do desire adoption may face. So what can Title X clinicians do to ensure those referrals to adoption services or experts in the field or facilitators are made in a way that can support that informed consent and ethics in adoption? This is a difficult question. I I certainly can't recommend any particular agencies. I don't think that would be my role. Uh, But I think first, it is important to suggest that uh, they do work with an adoption agency. As much as I may have some concerns about agencies, I have far greater concern about going it alone, the, the direct private placement adoption. The one thing that most adoption agencies are going to provide for birth mothers is post-adoption support. And you're not going to get that if you are dealing directly with uh, an adoptive parent, more likely than not. So uh, given that the agency is more likely to offer post-adoption services, they should be working with an agency. And I think it's important that they work with a licensed adoption agency. There are, in fact, a great number of unlicensed adoption agencies. That would be my absolute last choice. It is better to work with a licensed agency because there is at least a little 
oversight in the licensing. It's frankly, in my opinion, not adequate oversight, but at least there is some which then diminishes the risk uh, for both parties. I tell adoptive parents the same thing, but I think it's, it's also true for birth parents as well. I think it's also important for clinicians to caution that it's wise to be a bit skeptical about adoption agencies. It's important for for birth parents to understand that their interests may not coincide with the adoption agency's interests. Adoption agencies may be a child welfare organization, but they're also a business just like any other business. They have to pay their rent, they have to pay their staff, they have to pay the utility bills to keep the lights on. So they only get paid by the adoptive parents, not the birth mother, and they only get paid when a a placement happens. They uh, are not necessarily going to have common interests. And there are a great number of agencies, and they are all very, very different. Birth parents should be encouraged to seek an agency that comports with their values. Lots of agencies out there, and some will not work with LGBTQ adoptive parents, for example. If a a birth mother would be open to such a placement, then she should avoid those agencies that will not work with that population. Some will limit their services to those of a particular religion. If that's not of value to the birth parent, they should choose another agency. If the agency that the birth parent is talking to does not comport with their values, seek another agency. That's just simple. The same as to any information information that the agency is telling you. A birth mother should be supported in being active questioners at the adoption agency. They should push for answers to their questions. If they're not getting answers or they don't like the answers they're getting, they need to find another agency. There are lots of agencies. You're never stuck with the first one you check with. You can interview agencies before you decide which agency you'd like to work with. I also think it's a good idea for birth parents to speak with birth parent organizations like Concerned United Birth Parents or Saving Our Sisters. Both are organizations that are findable online to ask them about adoption agency. No one will know better than the birth parents who have experience with particular agencies how it is to work with uh, an agency from that perspective. And finally, I think it's important to use an agency that actually provides options counseling that includes parenting and abortion as well as adoption. I think it's important to look for an agency that will offer unbiased, all-option counseling. This has been a wonderful conversation, but obviously it's just a taster into providing that more realistic and informed consent model around adoption. So what are some good resources for clinicians who are interested to learn more about the subject and maybe also some good resources on adoption that clinicians can refer their clients to? There is a wealth of information on the internet and it's often really hard to tell how accurate it is. We all know this. In in terms of adoption resources, I would look, of course, for non-biased sources. That means don't rely necessarily on what agencies are saying about adoption. One resource that I use quite a lot is the Child Information Gateway, which is available at childwelfare.gov because it's a resource from the Department of Health and Human Services Children's Bureau. And it includes information about many aspects of adoption. Some of it is in handout form. So it would be something that you might wish to give a client. 
I think that uh, Concerned United Birth Parents, though not a neutral organization, has a downloadable brochure that encourages family preservation, that counsels birth mothers about uh, being cautious about signing things at an adoption agency. But they have a trifold downloadable brochure, and I think it belongs in every family planning office. And I can't help but advise, if you want to learn about the adoption experience, you have to listen to the experts. And the experts are the adoptees themselves. We tend to think adoptive parents are the spokespersons uh, who know everything about adoption. As an adoptive parent, I know that I have the privileged voice in the adoption triad. Most information we know about adoption comes through adoptive parents. We are not an unbiased source. Talk to adoptees if you want to get the real story about adoption. Before we go, What would be your final takeaways for our clinician listeners as they return to their practices about adoption and informed consent? Well, first, let me say thank you for giving me the opportunity to address family planning clinicians. Grateful for their work. It's so necessary in today's difficult environment for women making reproductive decisions. I believe the role of clinicians who interact with women facing unplanned pregnancy is to empower women to make their own choices. What most birth parents who have made a decision to place said that they wished they knew was about the resources available for parenting. Most who received options counseling from an adoption agency say they were offered little to no information about parenting. That's a gap that I hope can be filled by your clinicians. The most important things for women to know about adoption as they seek to make their own additions are I think the following. First, the birth parent has the final decision about the adoption. Prospective birth parents are parents, and they fully have parental rights in their child. They get to make all the decisions for their child, including who gets to parent that child. And prospective birth parents are entitled to raise their child. They're not a birth parent until after they've relinquished. Before that point, they're a parent like any other parent. I also think it's important that birth parents know that they should take all the time they need to make the decision. There is nothing that says you have to decide before the child is born or as soon as the child is born. There are options like temporary foster care, Uh, usually through the adoption agency, so it would be private foster care, not involving the state. You can do that after birth while you're making up your mind. Mothers and fathers, because they are the legal parents, can take their child home and decide later whether they want to place for adoption. Everyone acts like it is the most crucial moment in time that you have to decide by birth or shortly thereafter. No, there is nothing that requires that. I also think it's important that birth parents realize that if you sign a consent to adoption, your options for seeking return of your child are extremely limited. Even if the consent form says that you have a right to change your mind within a certain number of days, that doesn't mean that you would get your child back 
simply by changing your mind in that number of days. So it's really quite deceptive. It may be that the court will say, well, you've changed your mind, so let's have a hearing on the best interest of the child. And at that hearing, they may decide that the best interest is to go through with the adoption that you no longer want. So don't sign anything until you are absolutely sure. That's part of that take all the time you need. It's also important to realize that no one is entitled to parent the birth parent's child except the birth parent. Even if the agency or adoptive parents paid living expenses or medical expenses, even if they gave you, you know, sweet gifts, even if they're exceptionally nice to the birth mother, the birth mother can say no. They are not obligated to relinquish their child. They're the only one who has a right to parent, and no one else is owed a child. Adoption is often chosen as a response to a crisis, but sometimes that crisis is only temporary. Uh, but the adoption decision is a permanent one. It has multi-generational effect. A child does not simply lose a biological parent, they lose an extended family as well. And the child of an adoptee also loses out and may experience some of the same identity confusion that adoptees experience. So before taking the permanent step of an adoption placement, I think it's important to make sure that the crisis is not simply a temporary one and to explore all the available options so that you can be comfortable with whatever decision it is that you make. Thank you so much for joining us today, Melinda, and for sharing your time and expertise with our listeners. For more content, including previous podcast episodes, search for The Family Planning Files or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website, www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning on Twitter at NCTCFP, all lowercase, and now on LinkedIn. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter, Clinical Connections, on our website. The National Clinical Training Center is funded by the Office of Population Affairs to provide continuing education, training, and technical assistance to Title X grantees, subrecipients, and service sites, and is supported by DHHS grant number 5FPTPA 006031-01-00. This podcast is intended for informational purposes and does not constitute legal or medical advice or endorsement of a specific product. Opinions expressed herein are the views of the contributors and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, OASH, the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA, the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing, UMKC, or the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning and CTCFP. No official support or endorsement by DHHS, OPA, OASH, or UMKC is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies.
And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of the Family Planning Files.